Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Despite some technological difficulties, <laughs> praise the Lord, we're here and on the internet and across the world. Praise God. So we're going to do that. We're going to praise God. I don't know if you've been uh, kind of keeping your ears open what's going on, but God has been moving, and I've been pretty excited about the things that have been happening at the same time. When every time God moves, the enemy tries to rise up and, and do whatever he can to bog us down or mess with things. And so we're going to give God all the glory, and we're going to praise him. And uh, before we open in prayer, I want to ask you to do kind of engage in a little activity with me. I was thinking a lot about the revival that, that took place, and I call it revival, but basically a movement of God, let's say, that took place at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, and also at several other Christian colleges and places all over the nation. It's been going on right now. Uh, they came to church to worship for them. It was chapel, and they do it wrote certain time, certain day. They're required to go, part of their schooling. And so they went in thinking we're going to be here for an hour or two, however long it takes to do chapel. I don't know what their time frame normally is, that kind of thing. And went on then for 11 days. Not an hour or two, but for 11 days. Um, people then, by the 11th day, people were driving as far as eight hours to come and participate. And also, uh, there's some people who came flew in from Brazil to go and you wanted to see it firsthand, and um, so obviously we, we didn't do that, and it's not about that, it's not about the spectacle, but I want you to bear in mind this thought process that was in their heads that day when they came to chapel. They said, we're going to go worship just like normal, hear from the word just like normal, we're going to pray just like normal, we're going to do just what we just did the last time we went to chapel. Nothing new, nothing different. But somewhere during chapel that day, they decided, God moved, and they began to listen to the God of heaven over what they thought was going to happen that day. Okay? Thought it was just going to be a normal encounter, a normal worship, normal prayer. Listen to me. There is no normal encounter with God. Amen. Even in scripture, you can go beginning to end, and you will see that different people of different personalities and types encounter God in different ways. God always interacts with people on a personal level. There is no simple, normal, basic encounter with God. God shows up, and he does that every Sunday in our church, and we're blessed with that. He may not have done that for years in the chapel. We don't know, right, because we weren't there. But he does show up. And there's no normal. So don't go, well, this is just my normal time of prayer. I'm just here like I am every Sunday, right? Put that thought out of your head and say, this is an encounter with God, and let God be in charge of it, okay? Secondly, at some point in time in that chapel service, they started thinking, you know, I was supposed to go out to lunch after this. Or on like day two or three, they said, you know, I was supposed to take a shower today, right? And people left and came back and whatnot, but the bottom line is, there's nowhere that you have to do. And there's nothing that you have to do. This is time set apart for God. And by time, I don't mean this is one hour. You know, I don't, in case you haven't noticed, we don't do that. This is one hour we stop thing here. That's one of the reasons why we don't do that, right? Because it's not just we do this and then we're rushing off. I know we have the pantry at 2 o'clock. I understand that. And we will feed the poor. We will feed the hungry. We will feed those who are coming at 2 o'clock. Somebody will have to go do that. But not everybody. You don't have to be anywhere. You go, look, I got, I got food in the oven, or I got to cook lunch this afternoon, or we make dinner, or we got plans for family time. I want you to just let it all go. But right now, 
right? And as time comes, we end our service, and we say, okay, time to go on and do what we do in our lives, and, and you still keep those appointments that you have today, tomorrow, and so on. So be it. But for right now, just like had to happen there, and really should happen every Sunday, I want you to just let those appointments, those thoughts that you have, the things that you're going to do, the games you're going to play, the fun you're going to have, the work you're going to do, the projects you've got going, the bills you've got to pay, I want you to just let all of that go. Because the truth is, if Jesus Christ comes in person to take the church into the new kingdom before this service ends, you'll not pay those bills, you'll not, you'll not do anything, you'll not suffer, you'll not pain, it'll all be done if you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's the attitude of worship that we should have. This is not about us. It's not about what we got to do. Even though some of us worked hard, you know, I, I studied to be here, and uh, and you, you did too. I know there's a lot of folks this week that did their their Bible verses. That's really cool. And the the pot of things that we're going to put tickets in for growing, and it's increasing. But that's not the point. It's the word increasing enough. That is the point. And so, just one. This is not your normal worship. There is no such thing. This is your time with God. And two. You don't have anywhere to be. You don't have anywhere to be later today or tomorrow. Just be with God now. That's it. And God will do something amazing in your heart and in our lives. And it really is like that. It should be like that every Sunday. Let's pray together and then we're going to worship God. A quick prayer request. Um, my mom still trying to get disability and unemployment figured out. Yeah. And then my dad has another cousin surgery on Friday. Alright, let's, let's pray for him. I got a prayer request. Um, a friend of his is not doing well right now. Pray for my normal condition right now. Father in heaven, you know these things. And they're folks that aren't here. And they concern our hearts. They're our family. We love them. We care about them. The friends and connections that we have are hurting. Well, there's folks out there that were going to be here today that they canceled last minute or they got sick, already sick this morning. We're praying for him. But Lord, I'm asking you to help us now to shed. Shed the worldly focus. Shed the other concerns. That our schedule, our presumption that we came here and it's going to be like it's been before. And just just let us be together with you today. Let these songs of worship be chosen for a purpose, but the truth is, none of them are absolutely essential. They only matter because they're a bridge between us and you today. And we are recognizing the holiness and the great gift and the grace that's given through Jesus, your Son. We're honoring you. And yes, we lift up the hurting we lift up our family members, and the main reason, the main reason we lift up our family members in opening prayer is so that we can, and, and, and I think we've watched this sometimes, so that we can set those concerns aside or in your lap, really, and know that you're going to take care of them, you're going to make it turn out however it's going to turn out. We just want to honor you with our voices, with all of our, with our time together. We say always, you take over, you be in charge. So if there is a song in the order, if there's a word or a sentence or a paragraph in the message, and if it doesn't belong, if there's a heart or an ache or a distraction in this room, you deal with it. You are more than capable. You have all the power, creation power for the entire universe, resurrection power for the entire soul. We submit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
All right, if you would please stand and join us for the next couple songs. Some of you look rather comfy in those seats. music videos today. What did God's Word say this week? What do you got, Jason? Um, so I was listening to the song in the area and a couple times in the way, and a couple of the lines caught my mind, and it goes through my mind like pretty much every day. One of the parts, it says, um, the old way of swines and ask ourselves is to forget about it and take them off. Ooh, we yeah. all want to wear smiles so that it doesn't look like we're hurting, and we want to forget about the pain until tomorrow or the next day, uh -huh. because we don't want to deal with it at that current moment. And then another part, it says, all you time you don't say your name, sometimes it's hard for us to speak not just Jesus, but the word of Jesus, uh -huh. the word of God, uh -huh. and what we think, and what we feel. And it's hard for us to just push through and just say it. That's a good word. And you were talking about that first part. Uh, I watched an episode of a, a show that's it's from a long time ago now. Uh, it's called The Mentalist. This guy who's really like really smart. He helps solve crimes. And he's 
Uh, he used to be a fake psychic. Like he used to be able to read people so well, he could pretend to be a psychic and make a bunch of money. And then he, his wife and daughter were killed by a mass murder, and he became he kind of turned over to him. He became a good guy, right? And they, tra- they dealt with the tragedy of that. And then there's a scene where this other de- detective that's on his squad, her fiance turned out to be uh, in the employ of a killer, and, he, and her fiance tries to kill her, and she was forced to kill him to save herself, and because. She's an FBI agent, or CBI, actually, and he's a bad, bad guy. And then they closed the case out, finally, and, and a necklace that he bought her the week before she was forced to kill him came back from the evidence room. And they said, here's your evidence, you know, this is your necklace. And, and she took the necklace, she was holding it in her hand, and she was having flashbacks of the events leading up to his death. And then she looked at Jane, Jane's main character, and then she said, what do you think I should do? Should I keep it, or should I throw it away? And he said, well, you kind of have your choices. You have to make the choice yourself what you're going to do. Because I'll tell you what most people do. Most people bury it down. You have to decide, are you going to bury it down or are you going to deal with it? And if I, when I look at my Bible, I think God is calling us to deal with this. Um, we have a tendency as human beings to deny. Grief includes the faith and denial. You're going through something rough, man, this hurts, uh, you know, whatever. And, and we have a tendency to deny even the reality of what we went through. Well, oh, that never happened. You'll lose a loved one. You'll say, well, they, you literally believe, no, this can't be right. They never died. Or you'll walk around expecting to see them. That's denial, right? And you can go through a traumatic event. Uh, you can go through a relationship breakup or you can go through a, a violent situation or whatever. And your mind is rubber banding back and forth between accepting it and dealing with it and denying it. And I think the Bible says, deny yourself daily, take your cross, and follow after me. And I think that means we have to deal with those issues, and the way we deal with them is we give them over to Christ and let God make out of what he wants to make out of That's powerful stuff. And the Lord spoke to me during that scene about the same thing we were just talking about. And that was just like two days ago I saw that. It's really cool. And I agree with you as far as that we have a tendency to... Like, I own... I want to, every day, all day, own the fact that I am a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I get dismissed a lot because they'll say, oh, he's just a pastor, he's a pastor, he has to talk like that, or things like that, and I hate that, that I get dismissed like that, because I'm still a person, right? Like, I still feel like I, when I'm saying something, it really matters to me, not if I'm just saying it because it's my job, you know, and um, so I wish that Christians, if you really love the Lord, I wish that we would all be like that, and then people would stop saying, no, oh, it's just because he's a pastor, they could say, well, it's just because he's a Christian which would be better for me. So if we're all on board and we all start talking about Jesus, then we'll be like, instead of them dismissing me because I'm a pastor, they can dismiss me because I'm a Christian. At least I'm suffering for Jesus then, right? It's good stuff. All right, somebody else I saw him. Uh, Caleb, Caleb, Caleb. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. What does the Bible say about focusing on tomorrow? Where there's maybe no Bible verse that applies? Say it again. Don't worry about tomorrow because you have trouble today. That's close. Yeah, it's really close. Yeah, basically, Tomorrow for today has enough trouble of its own, right? That's what you're saying. Yeah. Also, James 5 too, don't post on tomorrow because you don't know what you're doing.
That's right. Yeah. Rather say, if the Lord wills. Yeah. Rather say, if the Lord wills, we'll go here or there. That's good. How many plans we make? Good. Very good. Thank you, Caleb. Hey. How does that work? First thing is, if you tell somebody to have a blessed day or to be blessed, you say, God bless you, and they're not saved, can God bless them? Absolutely, right? He can bless them anyway. He does it. And in fact, as he does do it, even if they're not saved, but the chief blessing would be what? To say we get saved. That they would come into an encounter with God through Jesus Christ. So when you say God bless you to somebody, when they sneeze, if you're earnest, I mean, you don't just say it in the road, right? God bless you. God bless you. Sneeze four times. I'm going to wait until you're done. Okay, God bless you one time. You know, you might just be doing that just because people do it, right? But if you really mean God bless you, and it's like a little prayer for you, you say God bless you, you can say in Jesus' name, you can say that in your head, you don't want to say it out loud, say God bless you. You're really praying for God to bless them. And how is God going to bless them chiefly? He's going to bring them into contact with the gospel over and over again until eventually they get saved, right? If they, if he honors your, if you're, he's honoring your request, and if you're a believer and you, Pray and believe you have what you pray for, you will receive it, and that's in God's will. It is in God's will that everyone will get saved, right? Not praying for a sparkling new car, because that may or may not be in God's will, but praying that they would be blessed. You can do that at any time. I encourage you to say, God bless you, or have a blessed day, all the time. Say it all the time. But mean it. Don't say it if you don't mean it. Like, when I'm grumpy, I don't say it, because I know my heart's in the wrong place, whatever, and I, and I know I wouldn't be meaning it. Bless you. You know, that's not the same thing. But if you're, if you mean it, if you pray it, God can bless. The second thing is, um, what you just said right here, 
Can you believe, can you stretch your mind for a moment and believe that there are people in the world, you do realize there are billions of people, right? So there are people in the world that are in a similar situation to you. So Ron, you know there are other senior maintenance techs in the world, right? How many senior maintenance techs do you think are in the world? Tens of thousands, right? And of those tens of thousands of senior maintenance techs, how many of them might have other factors of their life that line up similar to yours? What if, what's that? Thousands, sure, right? So now if you would get, you would talk with that person, your story would resonate with them. Because they'd be like, well, you're like me, right? You have some of the same issues that I have, whatever like that. When I, when I deal with pastors, uh, I run into this quite frequently, that they have the same struggles, the same and it comes after them in the same way and things like that. But the bottom line is, if you if you just went out looking for the people that would resonate with your story, you could find hundreds of people in your lifetime that would go, well, you're like me, and you got saved, you believe this. How can you believe this? Because everything I'm seeing tells me it's not real, but then there's something inside me that says it is real. How can you believe this? Right? If you can just find the people that will resonate with you, and then you can go even beyond that because you'll find that little parts of your story resonate with other people in a big way. Like when I was, when I used to work in retail. And one thing Sherry and I discovered is you want to have a, a, a life with your family, you want to have health and, and uh, be able to walk in your faith. It's hard to work in retail full time or be a manager because your schedule is all like all over the place. And it's whatever the business needs all the time, right? And it almost becomes like a, not just a master because everybody's job is a little bit of master. But it becomes a vicious master, a wicked master who wants to interrupt your life. If you're not careful. And so, whenever I'm talking with somebody in retail, I know my story. If I can, if we can talk about things like what they're going through, will resonate with them. And then you can, at some point, you can transition that to say, but then I encountered Jesus Christ, and now let me tell you how I see that. That's it. What we're talking about is evangelism. God does not ask you to explain the Bible to unbelievers. Check it. You find a verse and prove me wrong. There is not a verse in the Bible that tells you to go and explain the Bible what it means to teach the verses to unbelievers. Make you disciples and teach them all things I have taught you. You first make them disciples, right? You plug them into Jesus. Then we teach them all things. So if you're walking around teaching lost people, to be honest, you are wasting your breath. Right? Now you might have to police, you might be an authoritarian, whatever. You might, it might be your job to make sure things go correctly. That's all fine. You might have to write somebody up on the job if they you know, did the wrong thing, that kind of thing. But the bottom line is, you're just acting as a policeman there. But as a Christian, if you can find any part of your story that can resonate with them, and, and I'm going to submit to you, most lost people, just the fact that you were lost and got found, that you were lost and got saved, right? that might be enough. But you find that part of your story that resonates with them, and then from there, just tell them how you did it. You don't have to tell them what the pastor said. You don't have to quote 10 Bible verses from memory. If you got a couple that you can use to fit the situation, that would be cool. It would be extra, a little bit extra oomph, right? But otherwise, just tell them how you did it. I just one day said that from now on, I'm going to live for God through Jesus Christ. I'm just going to give him the rest of my days or whatever you're, you know, however you phrase it or whatever. And because you are, you already resonate with who they are and they resonate with who you are, Whatever you did is going to resonate with them. Now, they may not do it. They may go like, oh, yeah, you, you make that sound so easy. Right? I can't say how many times I've heard that. doesn't, at least. You make that sound so easy. Like, well, it is really just a choice, a moment in time. Right? And then after that, God's at work, and he'll help you make the next choices. And Right? Well, I have to stop drinking first. 
No, that's not the way it works. You can want to stop drinking if, if, the, if your relationship with God would lead you to that, but you'll stop drinking if that's what God wants you to do once God pours in the power to do that. And people always want to stop everything and fix everything before they come to Jesus, and that's just not the way it works. So, that really spoke to my heart. I would encourage you to say, bless, blessed day, blessed night, blessed weekend, blessed, be blessed, God bless you, all those things, and mean it as you're talking to people. I can honestly tell you that I have had thousands and thousands of non-believers say, God bless you to me. Can you believe it? I don't think they probably got what they wanted, but I am blessed anyway. But I say, God bless you, and they say, you too, all the time. People that don't know God, and I, sometimes I'll say, God bless you, and they'll say it, and then I'll, I'll, and I'll catch my head, and I'll go, wait a minute. So are you a believer? And they'll say no. And I'll say, well, can I tell you what I believe or can I tell you what the Bible says about that? And you're sharing the gospel just like that. If they said it back or if they were like that lady, like, you share what you did you shared the gospel with her. And if you had asked her to be saved and she had said yes, she'd have been an eternal preacher right there. She'd have been saved. That's pretty cool stuff. Thank you, Caitlin, for that. Anybody else got one real quick? All right. All right. Two things. First thing is, is I can relate a lot to what... Um, Caitlin was saying because I was, me and my wife, when we first started, I was similar. I mean, mine was a much more extreme case because I was a humongous jerk. So, but it was, it, it's crazy to me to look back and talk to some of my old friends that I used to, because I, I still have contact with some of my friends that I had when I was in high school. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're so different now, and you're not as wild, and you're not as wild now as you used to be. Like, and I'm like, well, I, for one, I grew up. I, I realized that I had to grow up because I got kids and a family to take care of. And I always, I tell all of them, I was like, and for two, I was like, I've learned who Jesus was. And like, the looks on their face are like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, you're, you, you're a church boy now? And then, that's a lot of them. That's what they call me. And there's a couple of them. That's what they said to me. It's just, when they say that, they say, no, my son's a church boy. I'm a church man. But, <laughs> well, it just makes me laugh because, it's just people don't really know you, and when you start telling them things like that, it really goes to show that you will never fully know somebody. You could be married to somebody like that. I've been married to my wife for going on almost thirteen years, and there's still things about her that I'm learning. And it's the same with her for me. I mean, you could be married all your life, and you're gonna learn new things about that person that you didn't know. And which goes back, which kind of rolls into the second thing I have. So I love to write, um, but I'm not, a, I'm not a big reader. And so it's kind of weird, but I was, I'm writing this book and I've been writing on it for a while. Actually, I started it and I looked at it. It's kind of funny. I looked it up. I started it four years ago in March. So I've been working on it for a very long time, little bits here and there and whatnot. And there was a while where I just didn't do anything with it, but I started working on it while I'm at work. Like on lunch break or downtime, I'll start working on it. And a couple of people asked me, what was I doing? Because they're like, are you writing a book or something? And then when I go, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. They look super shocked. Like, what? Oh, really? You're, you're really writing? I'm like, yeah, I'm really writing a book. I was like, I enjoy writing. And it's crazy to me that, that that's not a more common thing. And people find it so weird. And then... Which, the, like I said, this leads me to this. The fact is that the reason we do things, there's reasons we do things that we don't understand. And writing, for me, is one of those things that I've done for a long time that I, I've never really fully understood. 
until more recently, over the last couple of years. And it's a way to relieve, like, I guess an escape from reality, to get my mind off of things. But another, the other thing is, is whenever I'm writing, it makes me feel like I'm being, I'm trying to pull closer to something. And usually, usually I'm trying to pull closer to God. And my, I, I was looking back at one of my earlier things that I wrote when I first got saved, and it was so dark. And it was, it terrified me, it scared me to read it, because I'm like, that's who I was, and I still struggle with that same thing sometimes. But I would encourage, I guess, everyone to write a little bit, even if it's just a little bit, because you could do that. You can look back four or five years from now and go, man, I really, I've really come far, and I know... There's no way I would be where I'm at right now if it wasn't for God. And I've pulled all my friends at work, and I've pulled them all the same thing. There's no way I would be where I'm at right now in my life if it was not for God. And it's just crazy to me that it's similar like that. It's like people are like, wait, really? That's really? I'm like, yeah, that's seriously, that's it. You accept God and things change. And for me, they've done nothing but change for the better. When you're encountering God, you're counting somewhere else. There's always a shock factor between another person and another person because they don't know you. But when you're encountering God and God's encountering you, you have a shock factor, but God doesn't have a shock factor. He's not shocked at all. He is love. He is courage. He is grace. He is strength. He is compassion. He is merciful. This is who God is with everybody. So when you have an encounter of God, for you it's like, whoa. But the God is, yeah. I'm your Lord. I'm the Savior. Here I am. That's good stuff. I'm stopping there before you start preaching my sermon. Okay? You sure? <laughs> I got to teach kids. Malia, would you pray for us as we transition? We're going to dive an offer to a more worship. Let the Lord reign. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for bringing us all here this morning to worship you, to draw closer to you, to hear from you, to the people that you have chosen to give that message this morning. I ask your guidance and your blessings as we go from here. We would make the decisions that you would have us make in our everyday life, and we would be blessed for it. I ask a special prayer this morning for those who are sick, who are getting sick, who are unwell in a time where that's very common. Uh, we just ask your blessing upon my family and uh, my church family in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Sometimes, when I look at my Bible, I like to take it from another point of view. I realize that in the world, there are those who study this word, this written historical book, um, and they decipher it with a, a purpose in mind other than which it was initially intended. Arden is taking an ethics class at school, and he and I have gotten into some interesting discussions surrounding the material that he is studying, and there is a definite uh, truth that God is the originator of all things moral and ethical. He is holy, just, he is love, he is righteous, and uh, wrote this book with those intent. However, it is also true that many men will read this book to glean knowledge from it. I, I always use this illustration, it cracks me up, but uh, back in uh, the early late 90s, early 2000s, a man named L. Ron Hubbard wrote a book called Dianetics, and he based that entire book, which is a pretty stinking thick book, a self-help book on how to get control of your life and how to live uh, vibrantly and how to be happy. And he wrote it all based on one proverb. Now, he didn't tell anybody he based it on a proverb from the Old Testament, but he wrote it all based on one proverb. And it made the New York Times bestsellers list. He And, and L. Ron Hubbard was not a professing Christian at the time. I don't know if he became one or not. The bottom line is people look at, you tend to look at this book from their own perspective. And when you're searching and you don't know God, you have not met God through his son, Jesus Christ, you'll find lots of wisdom in here. And so today we're going to take it from a, a slightly different point of view. We're going to look at the book of, for, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will read the entire chapter, but don't panic. It's only 13 verses. It's not like it's a super long thing. Um, but we'll use a couple of other supporting verses before the, before we're through. And we're going to look at it from the point of view of how to take advantage of someone who loves you, all right? And so this, this chapter will give you everything you need to know on how to take advantage of someone who loves you. So maybe get a little excited, say a hoot, holler, amen, or a uh-huh, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Not a single uh-huh in the house. I gave you that opportunity, okay. You were very, I knew you were, I knew you were, brother. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I will read it, I will break it down. We won't spend a ton of time in the actual text, but you're gonna, it, it's not hard to understand, really especially if you know Jesus. Uh, if you don't, you may find some of the twists and turns a little complicated, and I'll try to break those down the best I can as well. Verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so the tongue of angels might be uh, the gift of tongues, or it might be the way angels speak. Um, don't worry about it too much. But the bottom line is, if you talk like that, but you do not have love, what you say will be worthless. It's just big and loud, and it, and you may correct people. It's like when I mentioned the inspirational moment, teaching people to be honest who do not know the Lord. That's just being a, like a clanging symbol. You're teaching them to do something that they really cannot do on their own. Maybe they can for a while, but not necessarily uh, lasting. Verse 2, And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Pretty good stuff in there. I want to know a lot. I like to study, learn. I, in fact, I can't study and learn as much as I would like to. I would like to have the gift of prophecy. Sometimes I feel like maybe I do have dreams, and then those dreams will later come true. I write the dreams in my dream journal, so I know I didn't make it up or imagine it, and I'll dream something, and then I'll put it in my dream journal, and then a few months later, it will happen just as it was in my dream journal, and I'll go, oh, yeah, that was there. And if I had only known, I could have done something about it. Occasionally, I'll be sitting there and go, this is deja vu. We were here right there before. And I'll be able to predict the next thing that's going to happen because I dreamt it previously. 
And most of the time I'm right. So sometimes I think I have the gift of prophecy, but I don't know for sure. But boy, it would be nice to have the gift of prophecy for sure and to know all mysteries and all knowledge. But even if you do all of that and hold on, and if I have all faith, right? So I trust God. I believe in God. If you're a believer, then it's because you have faith. But then this is a, a deeper gift of faith. It's something that you can work with, act on. It's all faith, he says. So much faith so as to remove mountains. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, there's self-denial for you. And if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So it doesn't matter if you go to the stake and are burned for Christ or give all that you have in this world to do good works. If you don't have love, it profits me nothing. And here we go. Now we're going to get the definition of love. And, and I, I submit to you that in here, and I'll try to break it down a little bit as we go by, and then I'll come back in the points and make it uh, maybe uh, more precise. Okay? Verse 4, love is. All right, so this is how people who love, love. This is what love is. Love is patient. So in other words, it doesn't, it doesn't get irate. It doesn't move too fast for whoever it's dealing with. It doesn't get upset when they can't move fast enough. Love is patient. Love is kind. I think we got that one. And is not jealous. In other words, you're not bothered by the fact that others are doing well. If you love them, you want them to do well, right? In fact, you parents often realize somewhere along the lines that you really want your children to do better than you did and not go through what you went through and not put themselves through what you went through to get where you've gotten to. So if you become a parent, then hopefully if you love your child, you want better for them than what you have, and therefore you are not jealous when you see them doing well. So love is not jealous. Love is also not jealous when it sees one's spouse, for example, maybe having time separate or something that they're enjoying or whatever. And so rather than trying to control them, capture them, keep them close to you, love lets them free, knowing that they will always return. And if they didn't return, well, that's that's a different thing altogether. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not constantly talking about how good love is or how well you've done, or how many things you've done, or how good a worker, how good a spender, how good a saver, how creative, whatever. Love does not spend its time talking to others about itself. Love does not brag. And is not arrogant. Love doesn't think, well, see, I deserve, I have rights, I should be getting X. Love does not think, I have put myself up there, I built this, I did this. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. This one is very challenging because when when you love someone, you kind of want from them that to be returned. And so you may do certain things in order to manipulate them to get you to do what you want them to do. That is not love. Okay. When a teenager, teenage boy, tries to talk a teenage girl into doing something behind her parents' back, that is definitely not love. When a teenage girl says, oh, you're, they'll never know, and tries to get him to do something, that is not love. They can say, I love you, but they don't love them because if they love them, they would not be acting unbecomingly. And there's a lot of ways you can act unbecomingly, but love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. So even, even though you can benefit maybe by loving more than anything else in the world, by loving someone and going out of the way in love like what we're talking about, you don't do it to get the benefits, right? And you don't do it to get them to favor you. You don't do it to get them to even, even you really want them to do well. And so I'm going to do a lot of things to make them get to do well so I can feel good about myself for having made them do well. 
to parents who will cover up their children's crimes to make sure they didn't go to jail. That's not love. Because they're not covering up their children's crimes self-sacrificially. They're covering up their children's crimes so that they won't have to see their children go to jail for what they've done wrong. Sometimes going to jail and receiving the punishment for what you did is the just thing. And justice is often what's best for people. Now, if you yourself are wrong, you can forgive them. That's grace. You give them grace. That forgiveness can go above and beyond. And therefore, you're not seeking your own, right? But where the law is concerned, that's different. Love does not seek its own. Is not provoked. So if you love someone, something goes wrong, whatever it might be, you're not provoked. Uh, it's hard to love perfect strangers, but if you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off and you are provoked, understand that it's clear that you do not love that person or have not become loved because you've been provoked. If someone says something nasty or wrong to you, come, someone takes a swing at you, right? And now your anger is up and you have to come back at them with whatever you've got. Realize you don't love them the way the Bible describes love. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. This one's really hard. We always talk about forgiving everybody, right? But we say, I forgive, but I don't forget. But according to this, love forgets. Love literally forgets. Like as in, oh, you did this wrong to me a year ago, but I am not going to weigh that in my decision-making process at all. I don't take that into account. That's what it means. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. You wronged me, but I'm not going to take that into account when I deal with you in the future. Love essentially forgets or does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This one's important because we think about someone hurt me, and I'm not going to take that into account in my future decision making, right? But at the same time, I am not going to allow them to continue in unrighteousness. So I'm not going to allow them to continue to hurt me, right? So I'm not taking into account the wrong that they wronged me, but I'm also not going to put myself in a position where they're tempted to wrong me again. It requires a balance. Also, when someone says, well, I'm going to live a certain way, or I'm going to do a certain thing, if love loves them, and love does, because that's what love is, then love will say, no, I don't want you to do that. I don't agree with that course of action. Not the other way around. The world is teaching today, which is they can do whatever they want, and you have to accept it because you love them. Right? Love does not bear... Uh, with unrighteousness. Love does not want to see that person in unrighteousness. Not excited about it, for sure. People go, well, I'm so happy. I, I decided to do this, and now I'm so happy. And if you love them, you're happy that they're happy, right? But when you realize the reason they're happy is because of unrighteousness, then you say, no, I can't be happy for you. I'm sorry. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Puts up with everything. I'll, I'll put up with whatever. Believes all things. This is going to work out. God is going to take care of this. You're going to get somewhere better eventually. It's going to work out. Hopes all things. God can do this. We can, we can get there. Don't quit. Endures all things. You can hit me, but I'm not going to hate you even if you hit me. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, that's that thing we said we really wanted, but if we had it, it wouldn't. Without love, it would be worthless. But if there are gifts of prophecy, telling the future, speaking for God, if there are those things, they will be done away. There's going to be a time where there's no more need for anyone to speak for God. If there are tongues, they will cease. Eventually, everyone's going to shut up except to say, Jesus is Lord, and every knee bowed and every tongue confessed that he is Lord. And then after that, praising God for an eternity. If there are tongues, special languages, angelic languages, Foreign languages, they will all cease. If there is knowledge, 
it will be done away. See, knowledge is done away when we know everything, when we get there. And then he goes on to explain in verse 9, for we know in part, like right now, we get it. We might know. Like, listen, the most knowledgeable person about the Bible in this room, whoever that might be, and I, I'm not saying who it is, if it's me or if it's RJ or Tony Brister or we lost Tony Tate, but it doesn't matter who it is. But whoever that is, ultimately their knowledge is not enough. They don't have enough knowledge. They don't know it. They can't even tell you. Like, I, my guess is you could go, okay, what book is before and name the book? And they would have to go, uh, it's uh, unless it was one that's really common. Right? Does that, right away, can anybody go, what's the book before Obadiah? Right now, can you do that? Can you tell me what the book of Obadiah is about? How about just the first chapter of Obadiah? Can you do that? See, our knowledge is limited, and it always will be. No matter how much we study or how far we go, that knowledge is always going to be limited. We know in part, and we prophecy in part. Even if you have the gift of prophecy and can tell the future, you're only going to be able to do somewhat. Right? We have prophecies about the next coming of Jesus, and we only sort of understand them, because they weren't totally complete or laid out. It didn't say, in 2041, Jesus will return, and this is exactly how it will be, and what the day will be like, and what color people will be wearing, and the, the history and traditions that will be in place at that time. It didn't. It's not complete, right? Because prophecy is limited in what it can do. We know in part, and we prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, that means the complete, the partial will be done away. So in other words, you no longer need partial knowledge or partial prophecy because you're going to have total understanding of what God is doing when that time comes. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part. I was thinking about this within, uh, I, I read a little excerpt a Southern Baptist pastor wrote about going to the revival that was going on at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, right? So he said, my wife and I, he said, when Star Wars came out, we stood in line for three hours to buy tickets and an hour to get seated. And so we thought, you know, if there's a revival or something amazing happened, it's worth the effort. So they drove eight hours to go to Wilmore, Kentucky to go to get into the revival. And he said, when they got there, they stood in line for five hours and they finally got in and they were able to worship for three hours as part of the service. And one of the things that he said was, there was a lot of things that seemed underdeveloped. Like a person did a devotional, and the devotional was kind of not really theologically strong. It didn't really, wasn't covered by the Bible. The points that the guy was making wasn't quite right. Okay? And then he said, a speaker got up and spoke, and they were just very blunt and direct, and they asked people to confess openly their sins and to turn to God and so on. And he said, that was pretty sound, but they didn't use a lot of Bible. So what I'm getting at is even as young Christians or as growing Christians, we're always going to kind of get part of it, right? I'll tell you right now that things that I learned when I was five years a Christian, some of them have like become so rich and powerful for me that I literally do them every single day or I want to do them. I'm always thinking about them. And others of them, I go, you know, that wasn't quite right. And I kind of let it fade. I didn't quite have the right idea there, right? And so we're, we're like, little kids growing up into the faith and we we get we want prophecy and we want the faith to move mountains and all that but it's all going to kind of be done away with when we get there and it's all done and you're going to look back and you go like that was my best understanding at that time man i was really driving hard doing what god wanted me to do based on my best understanding but now i get here and i face to face with god and i realize that was all trivial hear me now if you have any kind of thing about worship and you're like, I want to I want to sing as loud as I can because God deserves glory. Or I don't want to sing because I don't think that, that um, people will want to hear my voice. Or, you know, I'm not really a singer. That's not my thing. Or anything in between. 
Your thoughts about worship are infantile as a baby, right? Because we're going to get there in the presence of God and such an overpowering awe is going to strike you that you're going to become the best worshiper being you could ever be and you're going to put all this hope of being a good worshiper, all this pushing yourself or trying to discipline yourself or trying to sing when you don't really feel like it or whatever, all of that is going to be behind you because you're going to encounter holy God with such a sense of awe that all you can do is declare his worth and when you're worshiping, that's it. And so when you when you squeak out the feeble, when I was a young Christian, I thought, man, nobody wants to hear me sing. And I used to sit away from everybody else because I didn't want to sit by anybody else because I knew my voice wasn't didn't sound good and I didn't want to throw them off and whatever. That was infantile. That was me as an infant. And now I'm like, I don't think my voice sounds good, but I, I just belt it out there because I realize who God is and he deserves that and a thousand times more. And the development that I've done now in those uh, 25 years, 20 seven years, is minimal. It's nothing compared to the instant change that's going to take place when I come into his presence and know it all for what it is. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Last verse. But now abide, that means remain, continue, faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Okay, so there's a few things I want you to see in here, and, and, and the middle part of it is how to take advantage of someone who loves you. The first thing I want you to see in here is that this passage, often read at weddings, right? Like a lot of times they'll read this passage at weddings, because if you're getting married, you're supposed to love your spouse this way. Some Bible scholar in the room might know that in the Koine Greek, there are essentially three words for love. There's agapao, or agape love. It's a kind of love. Agape is a, an adjective describing it. Um, and Agapao is to love that way. I love that way. Um, and then there's Philadelphia. That's what the city of Philadelphia is named after, and it means brotherly love, like he and I are, you know, he's my brother and I love him and that kind of thing. And then there's Eros love, which never occurs in the Bible. Eros love is passion love. I love her. She's, she's hot. I love him. He's handsome. I want to be with him. I'm driven in my flesh to be with him. Right? That's Eros love. It's in a lot of literature, but it's never in the Bible. The two that are is Philadelphia and Agape. The difference is brotherly love is we love each other because we're brothers or sisters or we're, we're both Christians, right? And we love each other because we love God and so we share love with each other as part of the family. Like I, I love my brother Tom. We disagree about a lot of things, but I love him because he's my brother and it's brotherly love. But Agape love is this love. Every time that love appears in this passage, it's like this. And so at weddings, a lot of times they'll read this and they'll say, you got to have this kind of love in your marriage. Let's be just a little critical, shall we? How often does this kind of love appear in marriage? Well, that's problematic. And so what people want to say is, this is excellent love. This is the best kind of love. And I'm here to tell you today, this is not excellent love. It's not. It's the only love. It's love. It says, love is this, love is this, love is this. It does not say, excellent love is this, well-worked love, practiced love, try-hard love. The King James says the word charity instead of love here, and in other places, in the same word, it'll translate it love. Because when someone was reading this passage of Scripture, they wanted to say, love practiced, as if you might have love and not practice it, right? But based on what we just read, can you have love and not practice it? No, the answer is no. Can you despise someone and at the same time love them? The answer is no. 
Love is love. That's it. There's no excellent love. I love you excellently. I'm doing a good job of loving you. I'm doing a poor job of loving you. You love or you don't. And if you don't love, then you might look at this and go, well, I'm not patient with the person I say I love. If you are not patient with the person you say you love, you don't love them. I'm not saying it. Paul said it. As led by the Holy Spirit. Love is patient. Love is kind. Are you patient and kind with the person you say you love? This is not excellent love. It's just love. This is what love is. Now, immediately think, well, yeah, that's really hard for me to do. I submit to you it's entirely possible. I'm being a little philosophical here, but it's entirely possible that unless you encounter the Jesus that I know, you cannot love this way. In fact, if you, unless you have encountered the Jesus that I know, your love will be temporal, and this says love abides, it continues. And so at the moment you die, unless you become a Christian, the moment you die, you will cease to love anyone that you loved, even if you were loving them by this standard, because you will go to hell for an eternity wherein love does not exist. But let's assume for a moment that you're going, yeah, love, I see. If you just, just ascend to this point with me, this is what the Bible says love is. You do that? It's not, this is an excellent kind of love. This is the good kind of love. This is the kind of love to work toward. This is what the Bible says love is. You can read it for yourself. Love is. That's what it says. So then based on that, you can barely, very clearly see how you can take advantage of someone who loves you. And essentially there's like three ways. The first way would be to presume. Well, they love me. And so since they love me, they're going to be patient with me. They're going to be kind to me. They're not going to be jealous. Right? All of these things. And so I can do whatever I want to do. Because they will bear with all things. I can do what I want to do, even though it hurts them. They're going to accept it because they love me. I will do this. It's going to bother them a little bit. And it will bother them for as long as I do it. But I'll do it as long as I want because they will endure it. See? So now, this love, if someone truly loves you, the way the Bible says, gives you license then to do whatever you want to do and still receive that love. You can presume they will love you that way. In fact, I submit to you that if they love you this way, you would be absolutely correct. You can presume to do whatever it is that will bother them, hurt them, make them sad, break their heart even. You can do all of those things, minor irritations, all the way up to blowing your top, being stupid, taking their stuff, hurting them physically, whatever, and they will continue to love you. Because love is these things. And once they're practicing it, they're not going to stop practicing it just because you're stupid. So you can presume that they will continue. And in presuming that they will continue to love you, you can take great advantage over them. Because you can go, well, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I know it'll bother them. I know their heart may break. I know that, hi, Sierra. They may be struggling, whatever. But even so, I am going to presume it's going to be okay. I'm going to presume that this person's not going to walk away from me. I'm going to presume they're not going to blow their top. I'm going to presume they're not going to hurt me physically, psychologically, emotionally, etc. I'm going to presume. So you can, you can take advantage of them by presuming how they're going to behave because they love you. Secondly, you can be repetitious. You can repeat bad behavior. Bad behavior, and they forgive you. Bad behavior, and they forgive you. Bad behavior, and they forgive you. 
they may say something because they don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but they they will not say, well, okay, now you're doing what you shouldn't be doing, and I don't agree with that. I don't love it that that's happening that way, but I still love you, so you can do whatever you want. Repetition in the same areas, because now you know this is a beaten path we've been down. I know that they will be, they'll bear with me. I know that they'll still believe. I, I had a, a young man that I was trying to help with his addiction. I cannot tell you how many times he told me he was 100 days sober. In fact, he told me he was 100 days sober, and then about a month later told me he was 100 days sober. I'm 100 days sober today. Why? Because when the first time he told me he was 100 days sober, he was drinking, and he forgot that he had told me he was 100 days sober. So then when he told me he was 100 days sober, I said, you just told me a month ago you were 100 days sober. Oh, yeah, and he played it off as, I had discounted or whatever like that. But a number of times it came up, and, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to be critical, but I'm just going to be simple about it if I can for a moment, and that is that it's quite often that alcoholics use stages and they'll say, I know you love me, I can see that, and I want to make you happy, so I'm going to tell you what you want to hear so that, I, so that you feel happy, even though it's not true. And then you rejoice to hear what they've done, and they've essentially tricked you in rejoicing in unrighteousness because you're rejoicing in what they've done, but it's actually a lie. Later you find out, and what do you do? You forgive them and love them because that's what love does if you're actually loving. But the bottom line is you can see, based on this, that either by presuming what they're going to do in advance, which is you license to do whatever you want to do, or by repetition, you can easily take advantage of someone who loves you. You can easily take advantage of someone who's, who loves you. And then the third thing is more overreaching, and it is this. You can choose, the best way to take advantage of them, would be to choose not to love them back. And as long as you choose not to love them back in the biblical sense of love, what we're talking about, love, to honestly, earnestly love, simple love, real love, what God says is love, as long as you choose not to do the things that they are doing, you will always have the upper hand. Because when they do something you don't like, you can make them beg for forgiveness. You can make them ask you. You can make them commit. You can make them have a track record. You can make them pay reparations, whatever. You can hold it against them while in turn they love you and are not doing the same thing. So you will always have an advantage because you can choose not to love them back. And I submit to you, based on what I said initially, it's possible you may not be able to choose to love them if you have not met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Bottom line is, this is not a version of excellent love. This is a version of what God says love is. The only one. It is what God says love is. And secondly, you can see how out of this, you can easily take advantage of someone who loves you, either by presuming what they will do in advance. I've played a lot of chess over the years, and you know what the next person, what their move next is going to be. And some people are a little transparent. You know for sure what they're going to do next then you can adjust your moves according to that. So just knowing what they're going to do, you can presume it and you can behave in a way that controls the situation. you got an advantage. Secondly, you can repeatedly do the things that you want to do that and expect them to forgive you, to behave uh, loving towards you. And then third, you can just choose to not love them back. And in all those ways, you will have a serious advantage position I think about women who are being, being beaten by their husband and they keep going back and they say, they say, oh, well, it's just because they're, they're dumb. They, don't, they believe that he'll stop. They believe him every time he says, forgive me, and blah, blah, blah. Right? And people say, well, it's psychological and it's, uh, they have an addiction or whatever like that. Well, it could be that they love him. Right? Now, the truth is, if they love him 
And they keep going back, as he says, and he makes promises, and he does whatever to make it, to supposedly make it right. There is no making it right. Then the fact is, they don't love him the way this says, because they don't, they continue to put him, they continue to put him in a position to do wrong again and again. If they really loved him, they would give up what they want and get away so he can't beat them anymore. See? And it would be an act of love that they're walking away to bring to an end that acidic relationship. First thing, this is not an excellent love, it's just love. Second thing, here's how you take advantage of someone who loves you. Now the third thing is the outcome, if you should choose to take advantage of someone who loves you in this way. Let's say you say, well, I can see they love me. I want to behave presumptive. I know what they're going to do, so I'm going to do what I want to do knowing what they're going to do. Or you say, I, I, I'm just going to keep repeating my bad behaviors because every time they keep forgiving me. And I know they love me and they'll not walk away from me even though I'm being stupid or borderline abusive or whatever. Right? Or you say, well, as much as they love me, I do not find it in myself to love them back that way. That's kind of self-sacrificial love, the love that's described here. I'm not going to do that, so I'm going to take advantage of them in that way because they're going to let them continue to love me in the way that they're supposed to while I don't do it back in return for them. Here's the problem, and it's all in verse 13, essentially, and a couple of other passages that we'll look at real quick. It says this in verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You know, the Bible says this is love that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus clearly set that example. Also in Mark, uh, in the book of Mark 13, Jesus is speaking, uh, and he basically says, he gives the commandments, he sums it up, if you will. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Same word, love. In 1 John chapter 4, Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, John writes it this way. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You know why it's so difficult to love the way the Bible says love is? Let me say that very clearly. You know why it's so difficult to love the way the Bible says love is? Because outside being born again, it's impossible. And so if you're walking down the road right now, the road of your life, as two people, one who is born again and one who is not, if you're living a divided self, if your soul sometimes rolls like the pinball into the pit of the old self instead of staying where it belongs into the, into the light of the new self, then you'll find that you'll love like your old self loves, which is not love at all. Not the way the Bible describes it. Not what God says love is. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he paid for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That means God lives in us, remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. That's his Holy Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And I would extend that and say, uh, John says, and we come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Get it? So yes, this is love. Not an excellent love, just the only love. Secondly, it's easy to be presumptuous towards somebody who is loving you and get an advantage. It's easy to, easy to repeat towards somebody who's loving you and get an advantage. Or it's easy to just choose not to love them back. Or even if you should choose to love them, if you don't know the Lord, you could struggle in loving them the way you're supposed to. Even if you chose to do it, you really wouldn't be able without a knowledge of God because God is love. He is that kind of love. He remains in us as that love and so on. And then here we see the real problem. If they love you this way, if they love you the way that God has given and you choose not to, at the end of the road, do you see what happens? They remain and you don't. So caution, be aware. The one who loves this way, loves God's love, the love that God declares what love is, will remain. But the one who does not, will not. Now the problem is, obviously, then, other if I love this way, others will possibly take advantage of me. It's pretty easy to do. They may do it by presuming, by repeating, or by just not loving me back the way I love them. Is that not exactly what happened with Jesus? Jesus came to earth lived a sinless life. I submit to you, he lived a sinless life because he did what he saw his father doing. Well, what was his father doing? His father was loving people. His father was love. And so he lived a sinless life out of love. And then he even was submitted himself to die on a cross to pay the price for people who did not love him back. So you say, well, I'm embarrassed. I'm sore. I'm in pain. It bothers me. Love bears all things. I'm provoked. If you're provoked, then you're not loving the way God gave for you to love. And the Bible says, love one another. In Galatians it says, this is the fulfillment of the entire command of God. Love. Let's get it right. It is subject to the moment. It is about what's going on right now. It is making a decision. Okay, so they've behaved in an unrighteous fashion. I can't rejoice in that. So how do I bear with that and accept that and not rejoice in it? Well, it sounds a little bit like this. Listen, you know, this is what I see. I see you're doing this and that's what makes me happy. I see you're doing this and that's what you think is right. I'm here to tell you that I can't rejoice in that. Because according to God's word, according to what God says, according to what I know to be true, it's not right. It's unrighteousness. I have to disagree with that course of action based on what God's word says. However, I still love you. I'm still going to bear with you. I'm still going to be patient with you. And it is my hope that you will one day come to God through his son Jesus Christ and truly accept that God does have a pattern for your life. God does have a plan by which you will live and you too will be able to love others this way. It's not being translated. It's not getting into practice. Because Christians who say they're Christians, say they follow the Lord Jesus Christ, are not practicing love. We want to practice the commands of the Bible and do the things that God has told us to do. Jesus said, this is love, follow my commands. So we said, okay, I follow your commands. But when it comes down to loving people the way God has told us to love people, we stop short. Because why? Because we can feel them getting an advantage over top of us. And it's easy. It's easy for them to get that advantage. 
to presume or to repeat or to refuse to love us back the way we love them. But realize that if you are the person who is doing the loving and they are the person who is doing the getting advantage, ultimately what happens? You remain and they will not. And so if you're loving them just to feel better about yourself or just because they're pretty or just because they're handsome or just because they have money or just because they say the right things or they smell good, realize ultimately they're going to go to hell if they don't get born again, if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and you're going to be loving them while they do it. Because you're going to remain in love and you're going to continue to love them right while they go to hell. Which is why we can't rejoice in unrighteousness, why we can't further their presumptions or further their repetition, but at the same time, we still bear with them, still patient, still kind, still love them. And then that brings us to our conclusion. Real quick over the three. Number one, this is just love. It's not an excellent love. So this is a standard that you must hold yourself to if you're going to be, I'm going to say it this way, if you're going to be a follower of Christ. You have to love this way. And yes, it will take a miracle with some people. I submit to you, it took the power of God for Jesus to be on the cross and beg the Father for their forgiveness and say, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. While they were not loving Jesus, it's clear you don't crucify people you love. So they were not loving him. He was praying for their forgiveness by the Father in heaven. It took a miracle for him to be able to do that. But he did it. And we can do the same. And so... I submit to you, we must love this way. It is the only way to love. I would say to you that if you're going to keep saying I love you, you better start thinking about what it means. I say I love you to my kids. I say I love you to my wife. I want to say I love you to myself, but I'm not good at that. Sometimes I say I love you to my friends. I say I love you, brother. Whatever. If you love somebody, you say I love you, you better think about what you're saying. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say love is? And if you can't do it, if you honestly would look at whoever you're married to or whoever you're friends with or whatever and say, I can't love them. I don't love them that way. I'm not going to put up with their crap. Right? They're going to come in line with my way of doing things or else. And if that's the way you're living, you need to question your salvation. Because without the love that God has sent, that God himself is, you will not remain. If there's somebody in this world that you're angry, you have anger in your heart towards somebody right now, or you feel vengeful, or every time you think about what they're doing or the way they're behaving or what they've done to you, all you get is a feeling of disgust and you want to spit their name out of your mouth. If there's somebody like that in the world, it doesn't matter what they did to you. If there's somebody like that in the world, God's not going to let that in heaven. What if they go? What if that person somewhere down the road or even since you've talked to them, haven't talked to them in years, has been born again? We talked about how we're so different in the inspirational moment. We're changed so much. What if they get saved and it comes time to stand at the Bema, at the judgment seat, right? And God says, what did you do with my son? And they say, I submitted my life to the Lord at X years old and I've lived for him ever since. I forgive everybody who ever harmed me and I've been loving people and I've been serving. I've tried to do all these things, but I know none of my works of righteousness. They're all as filthy rags. I come in because of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. And that's why I have done all the things I've done. I've been trying to live this way. I know I've messed up, but here I am totally submitting myself to your judgment, God, through Jesus, your son. And he says, well done, good faith, and they go in. 
And you get up there and you say, yep, at such and such age, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I've been living and I've been doing and I've been giving and I've been serving. I'm going to do awesome. All my works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And I trust you with the judgment, Lord. I trust you with the judgment because Jesus died for me. I want to go to heaven. That's the only reason I get to go to heaven. And I know that. And he says, okay, well, let's just, I just want to ask you about this guy, Joe, that's in heaven right now. You lived the last X years of your life having a grudge against him, being upset with him, spit his name out of your mouth, anger. So what about those people when they bothered you? Where was your patience? Were you patient toward them? Were you kind? So I get it. You worked, you served, you gave, you showed up. Maybe you sang, maybe you didn't. That's a problem, but okay, we can deal with that. All these things, I get that. You were some of the spiritual disciplines. You did well with some, you didn't. But where's the love? And you're going to be like, uh... Um, well, uh, he hurt me. He doesn't deserve to go to heaven. And you're going to say, you missed the gospel. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. You included. If you, if everything that you have was given to you by God, why do you act as if some of it was not given to you by God? No. He's going to put you over with the goats instead of the sheep. You got, he'll say, you got your advantage in your lifetime. By not loving them the way they love you, you already got your advantage. Now you don't get to go in. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. way. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In other words, we don't have to keep repenting and, and, and saying that we're just doing what we're doing for God and putting aside the things that we're not doing for God. Over and over and over again. Now we can actually do things for God. It's instead of setting aside things of instruction, of after washing, laying on a hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. This is that transition passage that we studied about a year ago. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, it means they figured it out, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, they began to think, hey, this salvation, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. God visited his Holy Spirit upon them and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Hey, we can do things we never could do before. We can be things we never were before. I think we're moving in a direction of being like God. He says, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. He says, for the ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who sake, for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. In other words, if you start to produce the fruits of God, if you do the things, if, if you allow the things to grow in you that God would have you, what is he talking about? He's talking about love. And I, I get it, peace, patience, hope, all of those things, fruits of the Spirit. But he's saying, if you, the one who grows like that, okay. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't you get it? God can tell you this is not an excellent love. It's just love because he is love. God knows and God shows and God is. 
love. And if you will close out that love, if you will not love others that way, your wife, your children, your church members, co-workers at your work, your students at your school, if you will not love others that way, then you need to go back to, to square one and ask yourself, okay, have I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Savior means he paid the price for my sins, and Lord means he tells me what to do. And what does he tell you to do? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as yourself. Love the brothers. Love others in your church. Love your family. That part ought to be easy, but it's not. Not because they're not easy to love, but because the flesh man is not good at loving. Born again. Get out of bed each day and ask yourself, what does God want me to do? And on that list, better be love others. Because if it isn't, that's not Jesus who's Lord of your life. Now we can look away from our weaknesses. We can say, I've been a bad lover. I have presumed. I have repeated. I have declined to love back those who have loved me. And just plow forward and continue to live that way. Or we can, as the Bible describes, repent of our sins and let God bring us. And you recognize that you have failed to love people the way that you were called to love them? Can you allow God to work in you to do that? You understand that there is a possibility that any one of us in this room, God forbid, that it could happen, that we could have to give our life, and it might sound easier, but it really isn't, all of our time, or all of our money, or all of our self-esteem, or our ego, or the way we think things should go, we may have to give all of that to God. Dying on a cross, burned at a stake, shot in the head. Say, no, no, that doesn't happen. Do you like a list? Do you like a list of the people that has happened to in the last 50 years in the U.S.? You'll find that list numbering in the hundreds of people who have died for their faith. There was a church in Texas guy went and shot up and killed everybody in the room. They had a policy, check their firearms at the door. So they didn't have their firearms, and he knew it. And so he went in and shot everybody in the room and killed them all. One woman's son, who only occasionally came to church, he came in there and found them all dead. And saw the guy driving away. And he had a hunting rifle in his truck, and he pursued the guy cross-country, and like two, three miles away from there, shot him with the hunting rifle and killed him. But his mom, and his siblings and his friends all died worshiping the Lord. A girl named Mary at Columbine, God put a gun to her head and said, if you'll deny Christ, I'll let you live. But if you confess Christ, I'll shoot you now. And she refused to deny Christ and he shot her head and he died. I was in Columbine, Colorado, just by coincidence, a week after that incident happened. I've never seen so many black flags, ribbons. People are dying for their faith today. To be able to do that, if we would even have a chance of being able to do that, and therefore to be translated immediately into heaven. You know, the Bible says, the martyrs come into the kingdom of God first. I think it's a mess. It's the kingdom of heaven. But come into the kingdom of God first. In order to be able to do that, we have to love. And in order to be able to do that, we have to turn over the daily events of our lives to God. And let Him guide us. 
And yes, we have to practice spiritual disciplines. And we have to train ourselves. And whenever we feel that old man coming up in us and making us get mad or frustrated or irritated with somebody who did something we didn't like, we have to remind ourselves we have to love them. I'll close with this illustration. Some years ago, probably 12, 12 years ago, something like that, we had a Thursday night, men had a Thursday night Bible study in my living room at my house. And there was about six of us and we were meeting there on Thursday nights. And I had been struggling with my kids. And Arden was little at the time. So he was four when it happened. So this was 14 years ago specific because I remember he was four. And that, the day, like, the day before, I had a meeting, association meeting. I had to take him to the babysitter and he had wanted to get a drink of some Kool-Aid out of the refrigerator. And, and I was rushing to get ready for the meeting because I had put off some things, procrastinated. It's my fault. And I said, just get it yourself. So he went to the kitchen get the Kool-Aid, and he poured the Kool-Aid. Well, when he did, it tipped too much, and it poured Kool-Aid all over the floor in like a four-foot puddle on the floor. Huge puddle, and he soaked the rugs. Now, Andrew were already running late, and so I came in, and I gave him what for, because he made a huge mess, and we had to mop it up, and clean it, so it was sticky, and get the rug to the washer, and blah, blah, blah. And I told him, the rug's probably ruined now, but she wasted all the Kool-Aid. Like, he's just standing there crying. He's four years old, standing there crying. And I knew there was something inherently wrong with me that I would do that to a four-year-old little child. I was psychologically abused. Now, I was already a Christian, had been for a while. I was already a, a mission pastor of anyways at that time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with it myself, trying to figure out who I am that I would do that. I didn't hit it. I just belittled it. And in that men's Bible study that night, Spirit talked to me and showed me that every time a child asks you for something, Every time a child misbehaves, every time they say what you would rather they would not say, every time anybody, and I think that translated to an adult, anytime somebody does what you would not want them to do, it's an opportunity to show your love for them. And so that night, in that Bible, men's Bible study, and a couple of you were there, that night in men's Bible study, I prayed like this. I said, God, help me remember always from now on that every time they come to me for something, Claiming they can't do, whatever. and I push, I always push my kids, we don't like can't. In our household, kids say can't, I tell them, we don't say can't. If you really want to do it, you'll, you'll try until it's no longer possible. If you fall asleep, if you die, or whatever, there's no can't, right? Or you get help, right? It's just too heavy, I physically can't lift it, then you get a lever, or you get people to help, whatever, there's no can't. It's yours, it's yours to do, you just do it. That's what I always tell them. But at the same time, that night I prayed, Lord, help me remember that whenever they come to me saying I can't or I need help or asking me for help or asking me to get up or whatever, that I would always remember that that's my opportunity to love them. That's my opportunity to show them that I love them, whether they figure it out, that that's what I'm showing them or not. That's my opportunity to live with the God of heaven. I'm asking you today, will you start thinking of when people bother you, when people affront you, and they, when they, they seem to be provoking you, when they do exactly what you know, what they know will get your goat, or when they seem to behave presumptuous toward you, thinking that you'll know, they'll know how you're going to behave, or when they seem to be repeating bad behaviors over and over again, or when they seem to not be loving you back, will you, under those circumstances, say to yourself, when you hear from the Lord, when you hear from the word of the Lord, saying, this is your opportunity to love people the way Jesus loved people. And if you'd say yes, and if you know it hasn't been so to this point, then you need to turn to God again to make it so. Just like I did that night 
Now, have I gotten it right every instance since then? No. I've made mistakes. I make mistakes. But I've never forgotten it all these years. After Arden poured that Kool-Aid on the floor that day, unintentionally, it took two and a half years until he was almost seven years old before he would pour himself a drink again. Your not loving people is causing them post-traumatic issues. It's causing them pain. And if they're trying to love you, it's making it all the more difficult for them to love you and to love others the way that they should. I'm asking you to repent and turn to God and love people the way we are taught to love people. This is not an excellent love. It's what love is. And if we're not practicing it, we're not practicing love. And if we're not practicing love, we need to repent and turn to God and be born again today. In earnest. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward and lead us in a song at this time. This is your opportunity in your heart to deal with what God is dealing with in you. To let the God of heaven overcome it. Or if it's a pyre of resistance to burn it down. If it's a holdout somewhere in you, a dark room that you won't let the light in for him to invade. This is your opportunity to say, I am living the rest of my life for Jesus and I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. Not as long as God keeps knocking things down, I'm just going to keep plowing forward and following you. My theology might not always be correct. I might not know everything about the Bible. Does anyone? Answer is no. You may not have the gift of prophecy, but if you have all of those things, everything that you can have, and don't have love, you're nothing. Today, turn to the Lord and commit to love and win today. Win eternity. Would you stand with us and sing this song? If the Lord is speaking to your heart today and you have some kind of decision made public, then you come and let us know what that is. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. If you have been in the situation where someone has not loved you, and I don't mean, I, and I really want to stop saying this way, because there is no alternative way, okay? If you have been in the situation where someone has not loved you, and most of us have, that contributes to our inability to love people the way we're talking about, to love people earnestly, to truly love people. The reason is because we're, we're beings that tend to repeat what we see, right? 
So you, you hang around somebody for a while that has a nervous habit, do they touch their ear? Within an hour, you'll touch your ear. There's nothing wrong with your ear, no reason to touch it. You'll do it because we tend, we're, we're like that. We repeat activities that other people do. Worse, we have this saying, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So when we realize people are not loving us, I'm not going to do what God has told me I need to do here. Because if I do what God has told me I need to do here, then they're going to get away with it. So here's my justice. Right? This like forgiveness is for you. Right? You need forgiveness from God, and if you found it through Jesus Christ, you have it. And then when you forgive others who have wronged you, that releases the burden, the pain, the suffering has a chance to heal, etc. You need to forgive. We're great. In fact, the word says if you cannot forgive, you cannot be forgiven. Talking about Jesus. Loving is the same way. Loving is the expression of what we are created to be. It's who we are. Not just in Christ, but human beings were made for this. To love. It's why free will exists, which in turn is why suffering exists. It's why Adam and Eve had to have access to those two fruit trees, even though they weren't allowed to eat them, because they had to have access so they could have the free choice not to eat of the trees, right? As an act of love toward God. He commanded them not to. This is love. Follow my commands. They chose to eat of the trees, even though they, they had to have access to the trees, because without the access, they couldn't have love. They were created to love. And we were created to love. This is what we are. And loving people is sometimes hard, painful, causes bleeding, <laughs> all kinds of nasty side effects. Loving the person who's been bad to you may seem like the most difficult thing, but the truth is, once you're on the road to actually loving, once you actually start doing it, boom, God's in it, and the power that's in it, and the effect of God in you, and the Holy Spirit gifts start to flow, and the spiritual disciplines start to be exciting. Oh man, I gotta figure out how to love this guy. I, I need to know what the, I'm gonna go to my Bible, I'm gonna read more, I'm gonna pray more, I'm gonna search more, I'm gonna worship God, I'm gonna sing songs, I'm gonna do all these things because I'm being empowered. Because I was created to love, and now I'm doing what I was created to do. But I don't know how. So I'm gonna have to have God teach me. But as long as we're willing to go, oh, that love thing. Yeah, I got that down. No big deal. And like, well, am I patient? No. Well, no, I'm not patient, but I'm working on it. Right? I get provoked sometimes, but they know that's going to provoke me. They're only doing it to get my go. They're only doing it because they know it'll get me upset. Do we love the woman? And the answer is repenting and turning to God and letting him flow through us and do something amazing. And then as we do that, wow, what God can do. And yeah, you may not get all the theological points or questions or understanding exactly what it says right. You don't have to. Because there are only three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let's close in prayer at this time. Does that work? Yeah. It's kind of funny that this is what you were talking about today because I've... One of my biggest struggles is loving other people, caring about other people because I was always raised to... You show me respect, I'll give you respect. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I won't respect you at all. And that teaching has been like burned into my head through just growing up on in rough neighborhoods. I mean, that's how it is when you're growing up in a rough neighborhood. You show people around you respect, they're going to show you respect. But the minute you disrespect somebody, it's game over. And 
I've been really struggling with trying to do that and trying to keep that in my mind. That, you know, that's not the way it is. God wants us to love everyone. And it's been really, really hard for me over the last couple of weeks because I've been having a lot of struggles to show people that love, to show them that I care. And especially when they say something that they know is going to upset me. And like you just said, it's like they're provoking me to try to get violent or try to be angry at me. And it's really, really hard for me not to because just it's that's how I was raised. That was all I knew for 20 plus years. God said, have you considered my servant Job? The devil said, can I test him? And God said, yeah, you can test him, but here's the limits. He tested him to those limits. And he came back and said, well, you, you let me go so far, but you wouldn't let me go to strike in his flesh. If you let me go to strike in his flesh, he'll curse you and die. God said, no, I don't think he will. Okay, go ahead and test him. Test him. Here's the truth. If, if you say you're going to love people, the devil, evil spirits, the world system, and humanity in general are going to test your love. And I'm going to submit this to you. If your love stands the test, you will remain. And if it does not, you will not. It's God. What's his limitations? There are none. Let's pray that we recognize God has no limitations. Father in heaven, God love. In a day where the word has been perverted in exchange for other things, we realize your word defines what love is. Your actions make clear what love is. The same resurrection power that brought the dead body of Jesus back to life is available to power love in us. To be love in us. When we don't love, we recognize from your word that when we don't love this way, at best, we are telling your Holy Spirit. We are telling you that you cannot do to us what you want to do. And at worst, we have fooled ourselves and don't belong to you at all. No more foolery. You are God. You have decreed love. And we intend to live out your decree. Even though the city might want, or politicians might want us to run a pantry, to cut down on desperation in households so that people are less likely to commit crime, they have the opportunity to run, they can grow beyond their circumstances, all of those kinds of things. And they may need to think of it that way. We will think of it as love. Even though pastors the world over may have to hammer their people and say, we've got to pray more, we've got to study more, we've got to read more, we've got to learn more. While all of that is true, we will think of it as fueling our love even figuring out the pathways of how do we love those who make it hard or those who seem unloved, those who seem to be getting an advantage out of our love. We are not disadvantaged. We are the God of the universe. Lord, we know it's you on our side. No one can stop us. This world offers many things. Many of them are enticing. Some of them are disparaging. They make us think we can't go down this road, this road of loving others. But just flat out wrong. You are God. You have unlimited power. You can make it so. Living in us, every time we love and stretch ourselves to love when it feels difficult, stretch ourselves to love when it feels like people taking advantage of us, stretch ourselves to love when it feels like we just shouldn't or can't, we realize that your Holy Spirit who is living in us will be given free reign to produce 
love as a fruit, and kindness, and peace, and patience, self-control, but sometimes we turn you back. <coughs> Lord, please, work in us that we may love others. Don't think uh, there are any excuses, like we're trying to learn to love, or I'm not quite there yet. It's more about whatever we are, wherever we, we are now, whatever we can do, whatever we're capable of, to love others. Disallow certain behaviors. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. And may we never despise the gift of salvation, <coughs> power of your presence, and the awesome exhibition of love. May we never despise it, but always cherish it, and attempt to replicate it, and love others that way. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this concludes our services at this time. Thank you so much. Go ye therefore and love like the church.